podcast was recorded on October 26, 2017. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or of its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Okay, everybody, welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm here with my co-host, Samuel Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have the honor of speaking with uh, Jim Ross from State Street Gold Advisors. Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, so Jim, uh, you and I met a couple years back, or more than that now. More than that now. Yeah, it's, it's been, uh, been around for a few years, but um, uh, when we partnered together on sub-advising an ETF for your family. But um, I'd like to have our listeners get a little bit more background on on just you yourself, let's start about with uh, how, how did Mr. Ross, you know, stumble or, or uh, achieve his way into the business? I mean, most most guests we've had anymore talk about stumbling in their careers to get here. But uh, why don't you give us a little background? Tell us how it kind of played out. It's a pretty straightforward thing. I, you could call it a stumble. Um, most people would. So start my career off and get through college. Congratulations. I, yeah, I took five and a half years. Don't congratulate for too much. Um, go into public accounting, got an accounting degree, go into that, realize I don't love it. Look for my first exit job, but one of my jobs in public accounting was auditing mutual funds. Cool. I'm going to try this. Get a job at State Street. I figure it's a two to three year stint. By the way, I celebrated 25 years in July. Congratulations, Congratulations man. And two months into my job, kind of a new group, new stuff going on. But I didn't have a lot of work. It was driving me crazy. It was literally driving me crazy because I was working 60, 70 hours a week. Public accounting is what you do. And the new job. Like, so finally, I went to one of my bosses and I said, listen, I just need more. You find something, just grab me. So a couple weeks later, he looks at me and goes, we need your help over here. Well, there was a project team that was working their tails off on something. I didn't know what it was. What was the original SPY? So SPY, just for our listeners, this is the original first ETF, So the ETF, original right? first ETF, SPY, Spider S&P 500 ETF, now well over $250 billion in assets. But at that point in time, it was the initial ETF. No one really understood what it was. I'm not going to kid you. Was it out yet? Or was it was it not out yet. It was about two months before lunch. So these guys have been working on this for years. Two months before launch, they dragged me in. I'm like, cool. And they dragged me in for one specific purpose. They needed somebody to do financial statements. And they knew I could. I'm like, okay, counting degrees wasn't a bad idea. Now play it forward, we launched by, honestly, it wasn't a huge success out of the gate. The end of year two, it had less assets than the end of year one. And then it just started to grow. And it was really targeted at institutional investors. So what, what was the biggest challenge? I mean, people just think now it's so easy. Launch an ETF, there's hundreds that get launched a year. What do you think were the biggest impediments and hurdles when you're out there trying to, trying to sh- get interest? I mean, it was really thought of as an institutional product, as you mentioned. Uh, what were some of those challenges? So, I mean, the challenges, I mean, from the beginning, the challenge was, geez, it was trying to solve a problem. So go back to the crash of 87. Portfolio insurance didn't work. SEC wrote a paper on that. The American Stock Exchange came to us and said, yeah, listen, we want to try and redo this, but we need it to be asset-backed, and we need it to be able to, you know, move about, you know, with assets behind it in size. Okay, kind of strange. No one really understood it, to be honest with you. By the way, the original vision, four or five of these. 
That's it. Four or five ETFs. Four or five ETFs. To saturate the, all the corners of the market. Just kind of like large cap, mid cap, small was seen as aggressive. Maybe something else. International fixed income, no way. Really focus on the institutional trading community. 100%. Obviously, players. So we get this thing. Just getting the regulators around it was a challenge. No, I'm not going to kid you. Everyone asked me today, why is SPY structured as a UIT? And the short answer is that's what they would allow us to do at the time. And the UIT is a structure where you can't actually change the portfolio, right? Or, or it's only very infrequent kind of changes. Yeah, what you can do is you can restructure it so you can change the portfolio in line with the index. But you can't actively manage it, which is fine. And you know what? It actually follows futures contracts better than a traditional open-end managed fund I would. So there's some benefits to it. And obviously, it's been hugely successful. So, but I think, so from that, we kind of went with that, got it to market, and then just trying to get interest in I mean, this is new. And we're trying to get institutional investors who want to see trading volume. And not dissimilar to the challenges with ETFs today when people launch new, trading volume begets trading volume. So you have to get the first people to buy. And that was the challenge in the first couple of years. I would get calls from the specialists from all over the world. Hey, if you can solve this, these guys will start investing. And sometimes the answer was yes, yeah, sometimes it was no. But a lot of us did a lot of work back then just trying to figure out how to get more interest, mainly led by the time the American Stock Exchange, believe it or not. Yeah, it's, it's amazing that, you know, this, the catalyst for this was the portfolio insurance kind of blow up too, right? Where people are looking for solutions to be able to move really big sums of capital quickly. And I think, you know, that's the crash in October 87 was just thought of as everybody running for the exit at the same time, right? So, um, so you started with this ETF, you're working in this group, you're doing financial statement accounting. So you're out there now trying to get journalists and institutionalists. Where do we go from here? What, what happened over the next couple of years as, um, as you're trying to draw up interest in this ETF? So a bunch of cool things was happening then. So I, you know, I was, like I said, I was involved in the team that did all the hard work. I give them all the credit. And, but the reality is, is play that forward, they all go on to other things and they kind of leave me holding this as my client. I'm like, okay. So I'm working, and the cool thing for me, because my day job was boring, I'm not gonna kid you. I was doing compl- you know, mutual fund compliance and financial reporting. It's not exactly exciting. Move on, now I'm dealing with traders on Wall Street. They're trying to figure out how to raise assets in this thing. I'm trying to support them any way I can. I'm like, this is a different conversation than I'm used to having every day, it's more fun. And then we just kept on, after year two, it just started to click. And it started to double. It doubled for a number of years. I mean, 400 to 800 to 1.6 billion, and just kept going. Like, okay, this is cool. So we started looking at new products. We introduced the the Dow, jo- the Dow Jones version of it. Okay. Diamonds. Diamonds, right. We did sector spiders. The sector's what, 98 or 99? Diamonds, both diamonds and sectors were 98. So this is still five years later because the original one was 93. Okay. Coming up on 25-year anniversary of the SPY this January, so... So when you thought about that sector spider, what's the transition? I can, I can see the Dow, right? People yeah. quote the Dow. Uh, yeah. A lot of people don't still understand it's price-weighted versus market cap. Weight. Yeah, and, and, and mid-cap was out there at this point, but, too. Well, I think the diamond seems to be harder to trade a little bit because that price-weighted thing. But I guess, you know, can, there's that rebalancing component. So, so the, the, the Dow is very easy to trade unless you have a stock split. And then you have a major corporate major, action. Right, especially if it's a really expensive stock, right? Yes, yeah. it doesn't matter. I guess it's, really, it's all proportional. It's all proportional, but yeah, you have a stock split in the Dow, that's a major event for that, inter- for that, for that ETF, trust me. So talking about the sector spiders, you know, um, something that you know, a lot of investors do very, very popular these days. Um, you know, let's talk about the motivation for getting those sectors out there. I think that was right around the time when Gix was coming out, the, the original 
uh, first coordination of, uh, I think it was just SMP only at the time. And I think it's a, a hybrid with MSCI and SMP. But um, what, what, what made you guys think about trying to get the sectors of the market there? Because I, I think that, I mean, obviously SPY, massively innovative, yeah. first thing. But the sectors, that seemed to break off from this kind of traditional, widely followed type of index. Yeah, and the interesting thing for sectors is that was the first time ETFs actually did target financial advisors in addition to institutional investors. So, and I'd love to take full credit for the sector idea, but it was brought to us by Merrill Lynch. And Merrill Lynch said, listen, we have, so they had a, a person leading their sector allocation at that point in time, and he had a different view on GICs than S&P. Okay. So they're like, okay, we're going to launch his view, and his view was 10, I think we went with 9, because one of them didn't fit into a... And telecom was too small. Telecom was too small, so we rolled it in. But we also launched this through the Merrill Lynch system to financial advisors who were following his guidance. And you would see flow move in and out based on his recommendations of, of sectors. And so it was, that was kind of novel. We distributed a whole bunch through Merrill Lynch, got some institutional interest in it, and it just took off. And people now use it, as you know, like water to try and get in and out of sectors. You watch the flows at post-election. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, I, I think it's, it's funny, too, because people think there's all this innovation you know, and it's, it's the people behind it. But a lot of it's reverse inquiry, right? The people are saying, I have a problem out there. And so uh, is it fair to say, you know, a lot of this stuff, you've just been providing solutions to people? Or well, you've been listening? Well, we always listen. Um, I, I think, you know, the interesting thing I think about the ETF space is ETF sponsors get a lot of credit for innovation. And we deserve some. But the folks using the ETFs, either whether they're coming to us with the idea or finding a more innovative way to use them for asset allocation to get to their client outcomes are finding a better way of solving some of the problems they have, they're the ones that are innovating here. They're the ones that are finding new ways to use ETFs to solve, you know, problem for an insurance general account, problem for trying to get somebody to retire. And I mean, the ETF is a very flexible product. It's one of the most unique things about it because it can be bought from, you know, bought and sold by, you know, mom and pop retail straight through, you know, straight through to the, you know, largest, most sophisticated institutional investors in the world. So that's a unique product. You don't yeah, have that in mutual funds. Right? It's the same, same price, price for everybody. Yeah. Same price for everyone. That was one of the more unique things back then. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, hey, okay, a lot easier than doing class shares in mutual funds, by the way. So I'm looking at this and like, one price, everyone pays the same price. Trading's a little different. And I think, you know, we've done a lot of education on that. We need to continue to do that. I think it's the one place where ETF investors still have to make sure they understand, A, how to trade ETF, which frankly can be pretty straightforward if you just follow some simple you know, some simple things, and B, make sure you know what you're buying. Right. Well, I mean, it's obviously block trading, too. You know, you, you don't want to put a billion dollars in one of these ETFs overnight. So maybe you can tell us a little bit of how State Street supports that today and, you know, how having these uh, these desks that help facilitate orders. How do you guys do that behind the scenes? You know, again, remember the, the listenership out there. You know, we don't want to talk about these dark pools and things. But yeah. essentially, how, how does one as an institutional investor say, look, I, I want to put 200 million bucks in, in GLD today. How do I do that? You know, I just don't want to click a button, right? No, you probably don't. Depending on what size you're doing and what product you're doing. Sure. You know, if you want to do 200 million in SPY, you can probably click a button. Yeah, probably click a button. Um, but honestly, I think in most other things, you want to get information. You want to understand kind of where the market makers are, who the key markers are. A lot of the large ETFs, a lot of ETF sponsors provide certain intel on that and will try and help connect you with fixed income people. There might be some fixed income specialists and market makers you want to talk to, folks that have more specialty in equities and things like that. So we'll try and connect you into a bunch of different folks, not just one, but like, hey, here's a bunch of different. And depending on what your challenge is, they can help you solve it. 
Um, and they can do that over a number of period of days. They might be able to do it on a single day. Remember, the ETF can be as liquid as the underlying. So sometimes you see an ETF that doesn't have a lot of trading volume in the ETF. Well, the U.S. large cap underlying, you're going to be able to trade that in size. Pretty much the most liquid. Yeah. The most liquid you know, and even we've seen that with EM and other things where people have been concerned. You see large size go up. We've seen it with J&K. So, for instance, you talk about going to spiders. Um, so this has all been equity driven. Uh, what was the first fixed income ETF that was created? Do, do you recall that? You know, I think it was circa 1990. I want to say not, no, 2004 or so when fixed income relief came out. So once again, with anything with these, we have, a, relief we have a strong SEC. regulatory environment. We work very close with our regulators. So, you know, we started with the U.S. equity relief and then we moved on to international relief came out first. Okay. And then fixed income relief came out. I want to call it mid-2000s. I'm not okay. really good on exact years anymore. I'm getting way too old. <laughs> um, but, you know, so I think it was kind of an evolution. And, and once again, every time you hit one of those, someone would say, oh, you can't do this on fixed income. And it was always a question, well, well, hold on. And what we found is as we've launched ETFs in places where we've heard we can't do it, it's generally helped the liquidity of those underlyings. Yeah. yeah. So you can't do it. Um, I, I know one of the most popular uh, ETFs on the commodity side is GLD. Uh, tell us the story about GLD. What, 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 there's got to be a good story behind so it. So GLD was a great, GLD is a great story. And once again, I keep on saying that we partner with folks. So we work similar double line. We'll go council came to us and say, we have this idea. And I'll be honest, the first conversation I had with them, like, well, good luck. Go work on that. Let me, you know, we can. But I didn't, I honestly didn't think a physical goal product was something that would work in an ETF. Completely period. different from securities, right? Well, it also it was something that didn't fit in the 40 Act. Yeah. So I'm a... It's not considered a security. Gold is not a security, according to the 40 Gold is not considered a security yeah. because of the 40 Act, so it can't be put, you know, it couldn't be done in a 40 Act wrapper, which all ETFs up to that point weren't. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay. So they go away. They work with the regulatory environment. They come back and say, listen, we think we're going to get this thing approved. We need a marketing agent. You guys interested? I'm like, 100%. Work within the firm. Lots of concern about it. We're not managing any assets. We're an asset manager. That was a little confusing. Yeah. Um, not everyone loved that idea. My chairman of my investment committee told me that this was not a good idea and I should not do it. And luckily, I didn't need his approval. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, it was a very innovative idea. And we knew once we were getting close to launch, you could see the demand. You could see, okay, we're going to basically take a product that you know retail investors and even the financial advisors had a hard time getting access to, and commoditize not make it available to a lot broader audience, and it's a product that has deep liquidity. So it wasn't a question of could, it, could the market take it, uh, and it ended up being hugely, hugely successful. And it's an asset that's been traded for hundreds, if not yeah. thousands of years, yeah. right? So that's been uh, obviously a successful foray. What else has been innovated since GLD? So we went through equities, fixed incomes, we got commodities. What, what, else is, uh, what else has been another level of innovation post that? You know, it's been a ton. I mean, you just go, you go to some of the things we've done in the active space. Active. So active fixed income. Um, obviously, our partnership with you and several other folks, we've gone into that space. So I think we've seen some things, innovation in the active space. We've seen it just, even if you look at segments of fixed income, going from you know, really core fixed income to high yield to munis. You know, and that was another question. Can you do this with munis? Well, you can. Yes, there's some challenges you have to address. So I think you kind of look at some of the things we did in fixed income, you know, play it forward, you get to active, you get to international, emerging, EM debt. You've seen a lot of different things that you can wrap into an ETF. I think as you continue to see it, we see the evolution of things that more 
you know, even more some futures backing when you're looking at some of the commodity products that are getting to things that you can't physically hold. Right. And trust that me, used to be the ETN is the way you had to do the yeah. commodity stuff, but now it's it's kind of you, you can do it into a commodity structure, commodity pool. Yeah, and, but it's also you know it's one of those like in this way I always want to educate folks. You have to make sure you understand what the outcome is you're trying to get because they're going to look differently. Mm-hmm. If you hold, if you're underlying its futures, you're going to get a different outcome because of roll risk and other things. Right. But somebody said, well, why are they good? Pro- why are they okay? I'm like, well. It's the only way you can get access to oil. I cannot do a physical, trust me, we've looked, cannot do a physically backed oil product. You can't insure it. <laughs> yeah, I, I would hate to see the, uh, the expense security ratio. risk you'd yeah. see out there. I mean, uh, where are you housing it and um, the armored guards you'd have outside of there? Yeah, the uh, expense well, ratio would be very high. Right, right. Uh, it's called the cost of carry model for those, uh, those in their uh, Fisher Black equation. So, so we're talking about all the benefits, all the innovation, too. Let's go back and let's be negative for a minute. Let's talk. Let's talk about the criticisms of the ETFs, starting back with the original spy. Let's not talk about. It. Let's evolve the conversation. Uh, what were the first criticisms of when you were working on SPY? You know, the the first question it wasn't criticism. Is why do I need this? You know, what's it? Is it? What's it? What? What problem are you really solving for here? Do will this really work? Will it really trade? I mean, you read the original prospectus. And I don't know if we have the language still in there, but basically said if it didn't get over three hundred and fifty million dollars in three years, we would shut it. Wow, that's in a prospectus. <laughs> it's in the prospectus, yeah. yeah. I don't think any manager would take that risk even today. Yeah, oh. yeah. it was in the prospectus because UITs are unique; you can't just close them. It's not like a managed product, so right. you needed a trigger. Well, obviously, we didn't hit that trigger. So I think early days they weren't well enough known to be critiqued. Okay. Honestly, they just weren't. So they, a lot of it was like people wanted to understand them, understand how. Some of the basket stuff worked and how you would treat index changes. Um, and there was out there were some market participants out there following this, no question. I wanted to understand it, calling up with questions. Um, and listen, that's what happens in the market. But I think as you play it forward, where the critiques come from, they come from a lot of different places. And some of them are very valid. You know, we've had market events both in the flash crash in 2000, um, well, 2010, play it forward, August 24, 2015, markets didn't open right based on some volatility that came in over the weekend from, you know, activities in Asia and China. You know, so there's been some events which have been really equity market structure events, but it's also equity market structure we rely on to trade all ETFs. Right, so it's probably a tail wagging a dog in some of those instances where it's just bad information going to the system, and this is just repeating the price information in these, in these baskets. Is that fair? Or? It was either bad or not enough information. You know, if you want a market maker to take risks and make two-sided markets, they have to know what the rules are. Some of those rules weren't clear okay. in both those cases. And once they're not clear, you know, they cannot make risk markets if they don't know what the potential outcome is. They don't know they're going to potentially have a trade broken. They can't make that market. So I think it was really a lack of information in the marketplace in both those cases mm-hmm. about what had happened and what could happen okay. where stocks were opening. Because once again, the ETF in its truest sense holds the underlying. So if the underlying markets aren't functioning, then the ETF is going to try and derive price, and they will make markets, but if they're not clear about what the rules around erroneous trading and things like that are, it will cause challenges. And I think we've worked very hard since both those incidents with the regulatory environment and the what I call the ETF ecosystem, which is really sponsors, exchanges, market makers, APs, and broker-dealers. But what went wrong? How do we best fix this? How do we harmonize these rules so they're not... Because a lot of this was really ETF microstructure things mm-hmm. that no one really thought a lot about until it didn't work. Right. Yeah. What are some of those steps that, you've, uh, that you guys were able to achieve to, to 
you know, hopefully prevent something like this happening in the future again. So a lot of the stuff from August 24, 2015, really resulted out of what were new things that came from the flash scratch, which was limit up, limit down. Okay. And some of the things, just the reopenings of that were inconsistent among the three exchanges. It was fragmented liquidity. It didn't make a lot of sense. If an ETF or an equity price had dropped a lot, it got paused on the way back up, which was where it was trying to get back to its natural price. It didn't make a lot of sense. So it's really working on some of those things. Which, uh, to the average investor, I don't want them to have to think about it. But to us, because of what challenges we saw, we had to think about it. We had to work very closely with a lot of different folks and really engaging, how can we fix this? What we found is a lot of these things were different amongst the exchanges, but they weren't competitive advantages. They were just different. So we were able to talk to them about, listen, if, they, if you don't see that as a competitive advantage, just let's harmonize it. So we did a lot of work with the exchanges about harmonization, very well supported by our regulatory environment, who obviously the SEC was concerned about this, wanted to see proposals for fixes, so we were able to deliver on that. Yeah, so we're sitting here, and uh, Jim's been um, giving us the time here at a smart beta conference, you know, and so we've been listening to things, we, we've talked to some investors and, and given our views on things. Um, what do you think about the smart beta space and, um, you know, the... The idea, I mean, and again, it's you know, it can be critical, it can be appreciative, uh, but in general, what do you think about that and the roles that perhaps ETFs can play in that space as well? So I have some some general concerns with smart beta. Let's talk about um, it. But, you have an open forum. Yeah, let's talk. But with some, yeah, I think the concept of smart beta and using factors to slice and dice, I completely get. And we've worked as an organization very closely with institutional investors for years to work on different types of things that's now called smart beta. Um, I go back, we did, you know, somebody's like, well, we were, we were smart beta. I said, depends, you know. If, if you're talking about anything that's not market cap, sector spiders is technically smart beta. The Dow Jones. Oh, okay, yeah, Dow Jones, Dow Jones. Is so I'm like, portfolio, you know, any right, dividend basic, portfolio, yeah. dividend ETFs were around long before we started calling them smart beta. Right. So I think about there's a lot of good product out there that has used the concept. But when I think of the term, and I think, think about some of our institutional clients, they understand they need to hold it for a full market cycle to get the benefits. Mm-hmm. And what I worry about in the ETF space is that the buyer doesn't do that. You know, and I think we saw some of that with low vol flows. I was going to say with the low vol, like, uh, and it was outperforming broad-based market. And a lot of that, you know, my contention has been is that they were price insensitive. And so they've looked at previous track records and said, hey, it's low vol and it outperforms the market. Sign me up, which drove prices of some of these low vol, vol assets to really high levels, right? So that's, that's my, my, my main critique, if I have a critique, is not the product themselves. I think there's some good product out there. You can debate whether you want single factor, multi factor. Um, we as an industry will deliver you any product that you want. There's no question about that. Um, but it's, also, it's really about how best to use them when trying to achieve your target outcome for your portfolio. Whether that is, you know, you want to become a trillion, you know, you want to, you want to become a billionaire or you're just trying to save for retirement or you want to buy a boat. I don't care what it is. You just want to make sure that the investment strategy that you're implementing whether it uses smart beta or market cap, I could care less. Your goal is to get to the outcome that you're trying to get to. Well, I think a lot of our listeners, at least from what I've gotten in feedback, want to become billionaires. So which ETF is that? Uh, <laughs> okay, you don't answer that. No, we don't want compliance involved here. Too. It won't go through. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, no one, that one won't make it. But, um, you know, so, so you talk about the smart beta and, you know, you talked about, you brought up the word factors too. And so, um, you know, we lived through like the quant crash in, in August of 07. 
uh, where there was a lot of similarities in models. I think a lot of people grew up in the same school of thought. Uh, a lot of people worked at Global Alpha. Goldman kind of broke off. And uh, there was the, this kind of, uh, I wouldn't say they were all doing the same models, but there was a lot of overlap and similarities. When it's value, it's value regardless of the factories. But, um, you know, how, how do you think the markets responded to that? You know, as we talk about factors now, do you think, uh, and I, we keep hearing about quant factors, it seems to be on the, on the tip of everyone's tongues today. And so when we do that, you know, the, the bigger question is, is like, do you think the market is better prepared today uh, for these kind of quantitative models than they were historically around like the August of seven event? You know, I think the markets are probably better prepared. I think the investor might be better prepared too. But I also think there's still that same challenge is if everyone goes to the same trade and it goes out of favor, you need to be able to get out of that trade. And that's, you know, I think that that gets to kind of is the, is the marketplace working effectively and efficiently. You know, I go back and we, we, I've seen ETFs live through a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen through a lot of different market volatility from, you know, reopening after September 11th, which was a challenge because the indexes weren't open yet and a lot of the stocks weren't open yet. And what you saw is the ETF became the leading indicator for price discovery. discovery yeah. You know, we go through 08 when fixed income markets were, um, let's call it, not trading all that well. In very the, wide. And very wide in the <laughs> yeah. fall of 08 right. or not trading at all. Right. The ETF continued to trade. Yeah. Now, some people are like, well, your spreads are wide. I'm like, well, the underlying is virtually untradeable, so we have spreads. Right. You know, that, so they, they, there's always going to be a question of, and I use this example all the time, like, listen, there's always going to be a price. Might not be a price you like. You've got to make that's that right. decision. Yeah. You know, and, that, and, that, and that's any market. That's not an ETF. That's any market you're in where there's volatility. If you want to trade in the middle of volatility, you're going to have to pay a price for getting access to liquidity at that point. Well, we always say if you have bonds you want to sell, you know, give us a call. You may not like the price, but uh, we're, we're usually willing to make a price on something. What well, reminds me, I, if I recall, I don't remember if it was 09 or it was in the late 2000s, um, one of the hedge funds, Appaloosa, said we're going to make a market in CMBX. And so that's the, um, the CDS version of the CMBS market back then. And he said, look, it's two points wide. We're going to quote it to you. I mean, they were almost castigated at one point for saying, it's two points wide. But they said, we're willing to step up and be a market maker and provide liquidity at a market that the street is not giving you today. Right? And so th- that's another thing of people being innovative. Uh, you know, obviously, they have a purpose. They're making markets. They need to make money in it. But that's another way of people kind of stepping in in, in these illiquid areas, which uh, you know, we do believe that ETFs can definitely serve for that. So you brought up something about crowded trades. And so I'd be remiss if I didn't go down the path of the crowded trade today where we have this proliferation of indexing. Right. And um, it seems to be a, a race to low cost. Everybody indexes. The indexes have done so well. Right. Uh, we call them the quintessential momentum trade. Right. Uh, because of the market cap winning nature of them. But what you've seen here is this um, desire from the investor um, to want to index because they've given up someone on active management. Um, how do you feel about, you know, that behavior in the market and what does it create in terms of, is, does it make the market more efficient? Does it make it more inefficient at some point? You know, kind of, kind of where do you weigh in that with all of your market experience uh, in, in these uh, ETFs over the years? Yeah, so it, I mean, it's a challenging question because, I mean, listen, we have active product, we have passive product, we have, you know, we have index-based product. Obviously, a lot of it, um, you, know, I, you know, part of me doesn't believe in the debate quite the same way because... When people are using ETFs, they're using them in an active way. They're using them trying to get to an active outcome. They're just looking at this saying, my best way of allocating to these asset classes, I believe, is in a passive way. Mm-hmm. Versus going out and trying to buy the best active manager. It could I go, be a placeholder while you're looking for a placeholder. Manager, right? And I go back to the days, and I remember, you know, I've been talking to financial advisors for 20 years now about ETFs. 
because first five years, I don't think we talked to financial advice. And you'd, you'd have these conversations, and they'd be like, oh, you know, I really like the idea of an ETF to get my exposure to, you know, international real estate, because I don't want to do the work there. And then you talk to someone, listen, I think the core is efficient. I'm going to use your ETF for the core. I want to do the work there in international real estate, because I think I can make money for my client there. I'm like, those two advisors together were either my best client or my worst client, you know? <laughs> and, so, and listen, I've had folks tell me fundamentally over the years, I'll never use an index-based product. I'm like, okay, that's fine. I can understand that. I look at it and say, what's the best way to get to the outcome you're trying to get to? And what's the most efficient way and effective way? And if you have skill and think you can outperform, put it to work. Prove it. I think some of the growth of ETFs has come around folks who have done that and said, geez, I don't know if I can add enough value with the price differentials. And if I can do my job using ETFs and get the asset allocation right, and then my job is to really pick, make sure I get the right asset allocation for my client's needs to the outcome they're trying to get to, that's where we're trying to go. Yeah, so that leads me to my next question there, esoterica. So let's think about all these exotic ETFs we've seen and um, you know where it maybe doesn't extol the virtues of a massively diversified portfolio. You know, what, what do you think about the usefulness of some of those? I mean, yeah, maybe they're meant for the, uh, let's call it the hedge funds or the institutional clientele. I think of like these exotic VIX products or volatility traded products. Um, and, um, you know, falling in the hands of a lot of retail. Well, what do you think about that? You know, I think it's one of the biggest challenges for an ETF sponsor of any size. Um, and, you know, we have a large ETF sponsor. We have a responsibility to educate on every ETF product out there. Even though we don't offer a lot of products that might fit your definition right. of esoterical, yeah. um, you know, we don't offer leverage inverse things, but it doesn't matter. We, as a major ETF sponsor, need to educate our clients on what's out there. What are the risks? You know, what are the challenges? What are the risks? How do you want to think about that for your portfolio? Um, you know, and different folks with different risk appetites will make different decisions on using, whether it's esoteric VIX, Leverage and inverse, or even, you know, I'm going to take a flyer on, you know, cybersecurity, you know, and there's a bunch of stuff out there. And listen, you know, I, I'm to one a very popular ETF. Yeah. Here, right? right. And I am a fundamental believer in one thing. If you want to launch an ETF and you have the capital to launch it and you will follow the rules, you should be able to bring that to market. You know, I everyone's you sound like, like a capitalist all of a well, sudden. Yeah, well, it's funny. I mean, I've had people like, you need to limit the number of ETFs. I'm like, listen, we as a firm have cut down the number of ETFs we launched dramatically and probably closed more in the last three years than we've opened in any one year. Okay. But that's our choice. I look at it from a market perspective and say, if you have, if you meet the rules, and there are, trust me, there's a lot of rules, uh, everyone knows that. If you meet the SEC's rules for launching, you can get it to market, you can somehow get it seated. My only advice to anyone who has that concept is, have a good plan to get yourself through your first year and your first $50 million, because without it, you don't survive. Yeah. Um, and I've seen a lot of ETFs come in and go out of the marketplace, you know, and that's natural. But I think it should be a marketplace determination. Right. You know? it, it shouldn't be someone saying, no, that idea isn't valid. My view is that if, if the idea meets the rules, you should be able to launch it. Right, I mean, let the market determine market whether decide. they... Yeah, right, exactly. Speaking of letting the market decide, the market seems to be a little hot right now on crypto assets. Any Bitcoin ETFs or anything like that? I mean, I know there's a lot of regulation, regulatory issues uh, that are hampering those developments, but is that something that you see in the, in the future? You know, I don't know. I don't want to try and predict the future on that one. I know at, the, at this point in time, 
in a what I would call an ETF structure, the SEC has not gotten comfortable with that mm-hmm. yet. Um, whether they will or won't, really not my call, and probably not in my best interest to make a call on that one. Um, seeing I have an ongoing, very strong relationship with our regulators. <laughs> yeah, and we want to keep those. You know, that's one thing. So, um, one of Sam's favorite things to ask people that I thought he was going to ask you there is, uh, what are your kind of pet peeves in the marketplace? What, what are the things that um, drive you crazy that you see either you know in the ETF creation side? Or just you know, um, you know, people castigating the the vehicle, or uh, what kind of things drive you crazy that you that you see kind of incessantly over your career? You know, there's a few. You know, and it's kind of the opposite. One of the probably the opposite I said is, you know, folks who don't want people to create new product. I'm like, okay, no, that's just wrong. Mm-hmm. So I, I yell at people all the time. But I think people don't take responsibility. You know, part of me says, whether you're a financial advisor, you're buying in your own brokerage account, or you're the largest institutional investor in the world, understand what you're buying. And my pet peeve is I've gotten calls from people saying, I bought your product and it didn't work the way I thought it would. Like, well, what didn't you understand? Like, did you do, I mean, listen, I know not everyone in this world is going to read a prospectus before they hit a ticker. I get that. But understand the fact sheet at least. Understand the basics of it. Understand what the goal of it is. You know, I've had conversations with, you know, a private banker who was just starting a new job. I'm going to start using these leverage and inverse ETFs. They seem like the right thing. I'm like, do you understand the daily reset concept? And he's right. like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm like, okay, that's a challenge. You need right. to do some homework. So you're inherently short volatility in those yeah. products. Too, so right? that's that's yeah. yeah. So I'm like, kind of like, you know. So that's one of them. I think, you know, there's a whole thing around education where I just don't think we as an industry, and I've been on my high horse on this, and it's on us, have done a good enough job. If you have folks out there who are not getting the outcome they think they should get from an ETF that they bought, to me, part of that we own. Part of that has education on how they access it. Do they, you know, do they make the wrong? Do they put in, you know, I talk to people all the time. Don't use market orders. You limit orders. Right. You know, don't. Especially something that's in high volume, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of different things around educating on the trading side that I think is continues to be important, and it's evergreen. It's not going to stop. So, yeah, I, I have my, you know, I see some folks that will get up and just talk about their book and what's really important, and it's just big in, I'm sorry. I'm, we have a broad set of products, so I probably have a different pulpit. But to me, our job is to really educate the entire marketplace and less trying to figure out how to make sure they buy. Listen, we have a sales team that's out there trying to explain why to buy our products over others. They do a great job of it. When I'm educating, I want to be educating to the mass. Well, I will say, I remember when you came in our offices and were educating us on the merits of an actively managed ETF. Uh, you know, uh, you sold some of us that weren't completely convinced. And so, um, you know, we, we were proud to have, have partnered with you there. But um, you know, talking about people not understanding too, I, I do recall back in the mid 2000s, you know, uh, this was the launch of some more of these commodity ETFs after GLD. Uh, there's some things that were sitting on trading futures now, like in oil. And I remember people just saying, this doesn't work. It doesn't track the spot price of oil, right? As you said, you can't take that physical delivery. And people are saying, oh, it just doesn't work. I, I can't use this here. And say, like, but you need to understand the structure and what you own there too. Yeah, so. see, I mean, a lot of this, to me, if you, you know, anytime you're about to hit the button to hit a trade, I don't care what ticker you put in. If you don't understand what's in that product, if you just read it's going to do X and don't know what's in it, you're probably going to have an outcome that you're not going to like, yeah. unless it's very straightforward. So, so let's talk about ways of improving those outcomes. So 
Uh, we keep reading. We've read recently uh, your firm has uh, kind of cut the cost on some of your offerings out there. Um, I know you're taking a deep breath here. I know we all run businesses. Uh, but the thing is, is um, where do you see this, this kind of race for the bottom and fees in some of these products? Like, well, what do you think the ultimate outcome is? Is it we're passing the – are there inherent risks to doing that? And, and again, not, not being accusatory of anyone, but if it's a zero-cost product, there's got to be a fee somewhere. Market makers don't do this for their health. Um, what, what should investors be, what questions should they be asking now about, is there something hidden or implicit in this thing that I'm getting for a basis point or zero basis point, uh, type of fee? Well, to the best of my recollection, we haven't gone to zero yet. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, we're, we're getting there. We're infinitesimally small, but we're not zero. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I, I do know we, we talked to someone that offers a zero fee product, right. you know, um, recently, <laughs> Uh, but again, there's there's fees on the other parts. Yeah. But uh, again, uh, what do you, what do you see is is uh, what di- what distinguishes it? Do people just want just broad baskets? Because you're going to have deviation too. Everybody has to have a different index or a different yeah. basket in their line. Yeah, in some cases, the different index, and I think that is something people want to evaluate what they're buying. I think part of it is that in certain core asset classes, you want to be in that space. There's a there's a buy and hold investor that's very attractive to that. There's also folks who are much more interested in the liquidity side of the trade, right? And don't are less concerned about whether the expense ratio is four, five, or seven, or nine, but they want to be able to know that they can put, you know, twenty-five million dollars to work, fifty million dollars to work without really thinking about right. it, right? Or hundred million dollars in the case of spy. Right. So I think there's a there's a there's a kind of a bifurcate. So while ETFs can attract to all different market segments, it's we, we're seeing a bifurcated market in some cases where. The more retail-oriented advisor is much more, or investor, frankly, is much more sensitive to us than one price. I do think that you still always want to look at the total cost of ownership. Right. You that includes high, liquidity, accessibility. Liquidity, bid ask spread. Right. You know, what's the cost to trade it? What it so, I mean, there is there are other things people have to factor in. It isn't just about one price. Right. I think the challenge with that is the easiest thing for an investor to look at is the expense ratio. Right. And the other things change every day. And a lot hotter. Sure. So, you know, one of my education ways, you always want to look at the whole, the total cost of ownership because, you know what? Buying the cheapest ETF if you're holding it for two weeks isn't going to matter. Right. The difference of five basis, I don't care if it's 20 basis points, yeah. the liquidity value of have, having a much more liquid ETF and a tighter bid out spread is going to be much more impactful than if you buy the cheapest one. Yeah, not surprisingly, we get that a lot on the institutional side. We want to give you all this amount of money, but we want to do it for low fee. Well, so-and-so is willing to run it at a lower fee, and it's like, but it's what you get at the end of the day, yeah. right? And yeah. so, um, you know, some things need to be, you know, you, you should pay for liquidity. And that's what a lot of people don't understand with the ETF, is the ETF, uh, you should pay a little bit more for having the accessibility to have your capital at any point in time during the day, right? 100%. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I, so you know, always tough to have a crystal ball. Um, you know, I think as a large ETF sponsor, we will have a pot to play in it. A couple of things I think you'll see, and whether it's five years or seven years, or I've gone out to 2025 with certain market predictions. Uh, so I think this conversation is primarily around the U.S. ETF market. The global ETF market will grow faster. Okay. Um, and we'll see ETFs grow. In terms of dollar amounts? or, or Let's know, call it percentages percentage right growth, now because right, okay. they obviously have a smaller base. Right. I think the global ETF market today is approaching $4.5 trillion. The U.S. ETF market, I think, is around 3.2 of that. Okay. So obviously much more sizable. But when you think about just the demographic trends globally, mm-hmm. you, I would expect that ETFs in places like China and India will become bigger parts of their market yeah. over time. They all have ETFs today, but there's still small pieces of their marketplace. 
where it's a much more significant piece of the U.S. marketplace because it's much more developed. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, we look at that. So I don't know. I think in the in the U.S. side and even in Europe, I think what we're going to see and continue to see is we see more growth in fixed income. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think there's a lot. There's more. There's definitely more areas to grow. I think the fixed income market, mm-hmm. fixed income ETF marketplace. It's when you look at that as a scale to the U.S. equity markets to U.S. equity ETFs. It's a much smaller. Right. Um, so I think there's some runway there. I think you continue to see innovation around the commodity side. Um, I think you continue to look at how do you best, you know, I think there's a lot of discussion on ESG. Um, right. I think there's definitely some. Can you explain ESG to so us? ESG, yeah. environmental, social, and governance. Yeah. And I think there's some important things there around that that, you know, people want to be able to invest in. There's some challenges in trying to make sure, you, you know, I think in a broad-based product that everyone agrees what the E and the S and the G are. Um, but how one defines what the how E and the S defines. defines it, right? I think we've gotten to some better places with information. I think the index providers are adding, you know, actually bringing us more information. I think Isn't the there mo- a, like a United Nations board or something that kind of signs off on kind of the ideas, but it's, it doesn't really say this security qualifies, right? Right. right. It does, yeah. I mean, it's, very few folks want to say this security qualifies. The index providers are starting to do that. Um, but it's also, you know, sometimes in, in listen, these screens have been in a lot of quant models for a number of years yeah. as people are evaluating companies. But trying to put it so that everyone would agree on what the E and the SSG is in a, in a broad-based product is challenging. Yeah. But I, I do think we're going to see market trends that will continue to grow with the ETF market. I made a prediction um, at the ETF conference last year, so last January, um, that we could see, if, you know, and once again, this is on all cylinders. But I could see $25 trillion by the end of 2025. So 25 for 25. It's kind of like 30 for 30. We're going <laughs> to attribute to 25 for 25 for you. Sam, do you have anything last before we join your or we start your My session? My favorite segment? Uh, actually, I do have a question. So we started out, um, you mentioned that you've been in uh, the industry now for 25 years. So congratulations again on that. But just looking back you know, over that time, it's what, what would you say is your proudest achievement? Oh, God. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Everyone... Everyone talks to me about spy. I'm like, hey, that's not a proud achievement for me. I was a little, I, I literally like, and my best example on spy is you look at the picture of the folks on the floor of the American Stock Exchange that day. I'm not in it. I'm back in Boston flogging the financial statements. Um, I wasn't even close to New York. I didn't seem, I don't think I'd ever been in New York at that point in time in my life, to be honest with you. That's amazing. Uh, my, probably my proudest achievement is you play it forward seven years. I got involved in a project in Hong Kong, which is the Hong Kong Tracker Fund. And that was when I, I was like literally the ETF plumbing guy from State Street, understood the back office. We go over there, we're pitching both the asset management and the back office side. And I go over with my little ETF bag from the U.S. and how it works in the U.S. I get over there and I realize day two, we won this thing. So it was a, it was a bidding, it was a, you know, uh, you know, RFP with the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, a big deal product over there. We win it. And I realized everything I brought from the U.S. doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> None of this stuff is going to work the same way. So we literally well, you over forgot the, to bring your metric toolkit. Yeah, <laughs> I, forgot, I forgot to bring a few things. Uh, but we had to literally working with a bunch of great folks locally. We had to figure out how to rebuild and make it work in Hong Kong. And that was my first time I realized that, shit, things are different. And yeah. that was my, really my first global experience. And it was the challenge. You know, in the U.S., there's a certain timeline that you go through from a regulatory standpoint. They can take a long time to get to market. Well, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority wanted this product out and we had literally this was july we got to go it launched in november and it launched in november 1999 right before y2k mm-hmm. so there's a lot of different stuff going on uh, so that's probably what i think about where i got 
as deeply involved. There's a lot of things I'm proud of. I'm proud of the, over, the overall industry, honestly. I think we've brought investors a really good product over the last 25 years that have helped them get to their outcomes. And that's probably the thing, you know, when I kind of reflect on it, that's more important than any individual achievement. It's we developed something that grew in a way that we didn't expect. And I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say we had this crystal ball of, you know, four, four, $4.5 trillion globally and we no way. Right. Or over 5,000 ETFs, no way. It was, but, you know, we developed something that had certain basic characteristics to it, which is, you know, the primarily in kind, but doesn't have to be. You know, list and trade on exchange, intraday liquidity, and, you know, generally low cost to get to an outcome for the investor. And it's worked. Well, for that, uh, that's why we have you here today. Uh, you know, we're very proud to, uh, to not only have you in the room, but to partner with your firm and, um, you know, the confidence you had on our side, too. So with that, uh, let me turn it over to Sam for, as he mentioned, his uh, favorite part of the show. Great. So this part of the show is, as Sherman says, uh, Jim, in case you're not familiar, I'll just go ahead and repeat the, the kind of the ground rules here. So what I'm going to do is I have a list of words in front of me, and I'm going to alternate these words between you and Jeff Sherman here. And uh, what I would like in response is either a one-word answer or, you know, some people take it a little bit farther and add a phrase or, you know, just however much you need. But let's just try to keep it closer to the one word rather than mm -hmm. the phrase. So I'll start out with Jeff Sherman here. And the first word of the day, sir, is debt ceiling. A debacle. Mr. Ross, liquidity. Your friend. Balance sheet. <laughs> Unwind or, uh, unwinding. All That's right. from the Fed, by the way. And this one, I've heard that you're a bit of a country music fan, as am I. So, George Strait. The king. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I agree there. Uh, pomegranates. Disgusting. Active management. Useful. Artificial intelligence. Future. Smart beta. Complicated. Popcorn shrimp. Boston. I had some today, or yesterday. You did? Yeah. Where was I? Yeah, you were not. Oh, invited. man. All right. Goodwill hunting. Great movie. <laughs> <laughs> apple. Uh, Except yeah, the you apple. You got to say the apple part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Fed chair. Powell. World Series. Astros. And World Series. My second favorite team, whoever plays the Dodgers, the Astros. <laughs> All right. And that's it for today. Yeah. So thanks again, Jim. We appreciate you coming by. It's always good to see you. And uh, for your listeners out there, if you want to give us feedback, um, uh, please do so. Remember, this is on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play. Um, and as well as you can reach out to us at info at doubleline.com. If you have any recommendation for guests, feedbacks, criticisms, or um, any suggested words for Mr. Lau for the future. So again, thanks again, Jim. Take Great. care, everybody. Thank you. Thank you guys very much for having me. I really enjoyed this. Thanks a lot. Awesome. Great, Jim. Take care. Bye-bye. presentation represents Double Line's intellectual property. 
No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2017, DoubleLine Capital.